Amen. Amen. We arrive at one of these passages tonight in Numbers that you have to be a little patient with. And, uh, and I say this because we need to see some things together. And yet there are parts of the Old Testament that take you into some geographical territories that can seem cumbersome at first. It's going to demand a bit of focus and um, as well as a growing geographical awareness, which is why tonight I've supplied uh, for your uh, keeping and uh, even framing and putting on your wall, if you would like, a uh, a map of uh, what we'll use here in Numbers 21. And um, I I want us to see uh, a few spots. This map is far more in-depth and names of places than we will need tonight. But, but it does indeed include the locations uh, to see. We are in the 40th year of Israel's wilderness wandering. And the closer they have gotten to the promised land, the more the building and excitement you can imagine in their minds and families. They have recently won a victory at a place called Hormah at the beginning of Numbers 21, verses 1 to 3. But even after that victory, they had to travel around Edom. And what I wanted you to notice with the yellow line you see, and I tried to put this on the board with a little dotted sketch here, is that they're going to have to go after this Arad victory. They're not going to progress further for more battles. They're going to go around Edom, and that's going to mean a longer trek. This is partly what explained how impatient they became along the way. Uh, So this is... Uh, some itinerary we're going to notice tonight, some selected places that Israel went. Most of these places are not known with any confidence by archaeologists at this point as they study the ancient world. Some of these places are so obscure and remote in the ancient world, we can trust that the readers would know where that was and why that mattered. We're looking at some of these places with not that kind of confidence with uh, their specific location, latitude and longitude, that is. Let's look together in verses 10 to 13 at some camps along the way to Canaan. And the big picture is Israel is going to arrive tonight east of the Jordan River in Dead Sea in a place called Moab, a very specific spot there. The reason that's a big deal is because this is going to put them opposite the promised land known as the land of Canaan. And in Moab, they will remain for the rest of Numbers and all of Deuteronomy. So what we're going to feel tonight is a sense of arrival. This is an important milestone. And then we're going to see some camps along the way. And if you've ever had somebody recount to you their travels, and let's say they went to Yellowstone Park, and then you say, okay, so you went to Yellowstone. And you say, well, yeah, but here's where I went first. First we went here, and then we went here, and then we went here. And you ultimately think, well, I might know where Yellowstone is, but some of these other spots along the way, eh, maybe not. But they're just recounting the journey. And those who went through the journey, it would mean certainly the most to them. Let's imagine it from that perspective. The big picture is getting to the eastern side of the Jordan River in an area of Moab, but some other spots along the way that certainly mattered to those Israelites. In verse 10, we're told, the people of Israel set out and camped at Aboth. And Aboth would be a place they get to after leaving the Negev desert area after this victory over the king of Arad from Numbers 21, 1 to 3. But we don't know where Aboth is located. And so there's nothing on the map that you should see that says that. 
But then we're told in verse 11, they set out from Aboth and camped at Ai-Abarim in the wilderness that is opposite Moab toward the sunrise. From there, they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. Well, Aboth and Ai-Abarim are unclear. But the word Moab gets us more to realize they're going around Edom and we're given some summary statements. That's the key. And they camped in a valley called Zered. In verse 13, from there they set out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. And what I tried to show here on the board and what you'll notice on your map is something called the Arnon River or Arnon Gorge, which is a northern border for Moab at this point in Israel's history. So what you have is a traveling around Edom and then northeast of Edom to get to this river, Arnon. It empties into the Dead Sea. Uh, that's one thing to note about this Arnon River. But it's also a border for the Amorites. It is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. This is an important location. Now, um, there are some famous camp songs that uh, you and I might know from over the years or taught our children or heard as children. And what you're going to read in the verses that follow are, by analogy, that kind of thing that are what seem to be lyrics or things sung along the way as they are camping and as they are traveling. And when I think of famous camp songs, I think of things like, you know, She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain or, you know, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt or some other things that uh, were, were easy to remember and to sing together and that people might do as they're traveling or sitting around a campfire or what have you. Some kind of setting where this was well known enough to be enjoyed. And there is, there is a, uh, let's call it their camp song book. Um, it is called The Book of the Wars of the Lord. Sounds quite ominous. Um, in verse 14, therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, the following thing. Now, what you'll notice in verses 14 and 15 is that those words in what's called the book of the wars of the Lord, it is set off in a poetic indentation in our translations. I mean, it's most likely the case with the one you're holding. In other words, it, is, it looks like we're looking at poetic verse, some kind of statements or lyrics. And therefore, it is said in the book of the war, words, wars of the Lord, the following, Wahib in Sufa, and the valleys of the Arnon, and the slope of the valleys that extends to the seat of Ar, and leans to the border of Moab. You think, okay, <laughs> what exactly are we supposed to do with that? That doesn't sound like she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. Fair enough, okay? This is most likely a record in poetic form of places that were part of Israel's journey. And the reason that matters for them is they went this route, we didn't. And so we look at these places and we think, well, Wahib and Sufa, where in the world is that? Or, you know, the, the seat of Ar that leans to the border of Moab. Why does that matter? Well, Ar, A-R, is a very important city in Moab. They are talking about different places in a condensed way that they went on their journey. 
And the reason they would sing about it is because they are feeling the momentum spiritually and congregationally of nearing the promised land. You know what you don't see between Numbers 10 and 20? A lot of singing. But here, they seem to have a poetic uh, drawing upon uh, this book of the wars of the Lord where um, they are remembering in a memorable way where they've been. That's probably the reason for the poetic stanzas. These places are put in a way so that in the original language, it would be memorable. And it's, it's like if you were to ask uh, somebody, you know, where have you been? And they tried to recount that. They might have different ways to keep those memories alive. They might have pictures to show you on their phone or otherwise. They might be able to recount certain places on a map that they marked. It seems that in the providence of the Lord, Israel would commit in a kind of song certain places they went. And there is, this is an excerpt. It is said in the book of the wars of the Lord. So there's a lot more than that. But then there's another interesting question. A, a reader might say, well, have, has there ever been discovered a book called the book of the wars of the Lord because that's not like exactly one of the Bible book names okay it's not among the 66 books is this like a missing book it does seem that in verse 14 we should understand this to be a record a written record put in song and verse form of different places more than just that I think verses 17 and 18 also draw from this same book but this is not a book that was inspired by the spirit to be preserved for the generations as something like Deuteronomy, Judges, 1 Samuel. So we don't have this as a canonical book. We simply have a few lines from it, and that's it. There's never been any confidence that any archaeologist or ancient Near Eastern historian has ever come across something that would have been traditionally known with this or an equivalent title. So it seems that this is a lost or no longer extant record of some of Israel's uh, places. But of course, should the Spirit have intended us to know this and canonically to have kept it, it would have been preserved. This is simply an excerpt from a book we do not have. And then in verses 16, uh, in verse 16, from there they continued to Be'er. Now you might want to pronounce that beer because we might think, well, when I look at B-E-E-R, that's exactly what it looks like. But this is not the drink. Be'er is actually a place that means well, where you draw water from, obviously, right? So here they continue to Be'er. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. That is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together so that I may give them water. This means along the journey, more water issues have arisen. Not only are they remembering where they've been traveling and they're keeping a careful itinerary. You see that in Numbers 33, very long description of where they've been. Um, you notice here in verse 16, the Lord has called them to enjoy more water provision. Which is really good because earlier in Numbers 21, there was some complaint. There is no food. There is no water. But of course, along the way, God has provided them food and even miraculously supplied water. What we like about verse 16, it seems, is that this is not preceded by some kind of murmuring and complaint. Rather, the people are heading toward Moab. And in verse 16, there's a place called Be'er, which is named for this well the Lord supplied the people. Gather the people together so that I may give them water. So Moses is to do this. Now, we don't have a narrative that he did. We just have in song that it was completed. Verses 17 and 18 is a lyrical, obedient response 
to what the Lord said Moses should do. Gather the people together. I'm going to give them water. Well, what did that look like? Well, in verse 17 and 18, the people sing this song. Spring up, O well. Sing to it. The well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. This is to say... We don't have a miraculous water from the rock when Moses spoke to it or struck it or anything like those previous instructions were. This seems to be the Lord providing for the people through their faithful effort and work. In other words, sometimes the Lord might supply water from a rock miraculously like Exodus 17 and like um, or Exodus 15, Exodus 17, and then uh, you see Numbers chapter 20, all referring to these uh, provisions of the Lord miraculously. Sometimes the Lord is going to say, I'm going to provide water for you, dig. <laughs> dig. Get digging because this is the spot. Gather around. Here is water for your people. And it, it is an intersection. Let's call it a, an interesting intersection between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The Lord is going to guide the people and they're going to dig for the water. And it turns out that as they're using these words, people of even great leadership and status within the camp did. People that would have been considered princely leaders or nobles among the Israelites. They're joining in. The scepter and their staffs represent their authority and their their, uh, nobility among the people. But they join in the work. God is providing it. The leaders are serving and joining in. And I I like that the end of verse 17, it says, Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, sing to it. It, It's as as if you can imagine the people of God doing the digging and saying, spring up, O well, let's see it. Come on, well, come on, water. Now, that's not because they're praying to it. It's to simply say, we're going to sing and proclaim this while we work. There are um, occasions where people have done this in history, right? Where people are enjoying a kind of song that takes their mind off the grueling effort uh, that can happen. This reminds me of what are sometimes called sea shanties. And a sea shanty is a phrase that was uh, that is, is um, uh, talking about songs performed on ships. And uh, sea, sh- sea shanties are collective folk songs that sailors would perform because they had to do the same repetitive task over and over again. So if you have ever noticed in a movie or a TV show, maybe it's a pirate ship, maybe it's a merchant ship or whatever, and the camera zooms in and all these people are on the top deck and they're doing all this work and they're singing together. Well, what they're doing is they are doing a sea shanty song, and uh, they are enjoying this. And this happened uh, throughout history. In fact, some of the oldest sea shanties can be traced to the 1500s, and they were widely practiced in the 1800s, especially in some famous New Zealand folk songs where people were whale hunting and and other uh, merchant activities taking place. It would keep the morale up, it would keep the energy level up, and people could focus on singing together. And so I think about that when I read Israel here they're singing together having to dig this well spring up a well and this is only a part of the song the well that the princes made that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs Um, now what we've noticed then israel's been going and as they've gone they're putting some places in the itinerary in song They even come across a place where God's going to provide more water since he is faithful to do so. They sing about that. Two song excerpts in a very short state. 
That's not normal for numbers. I'm just going to remind us, that's not normal for numbers. And this seems to suggest the rising zeal and excitement for the people. The closer they're getting to the land, you see some occasions in this chapter of breaking out into song. Because songs help them. They help them keep going. They help them move together. They help them keep hoping. And they're getting closer and closer to that. And I think truly, friends, don't songs function the same way in our own lives to some degree? They are genuinely helpful to our souls, not just individually performed, but collectively enjoyed together. We recognize this in corporate worship on the Lord's Day. There's something about God delivering us out of sin and bondage, heading toward the new creation in the age to come, and having songs to market along the way. That really does matter. And it seems that for the practical lives of the Israelites, they experienced that as well. Notice at the end of verse 18, some more places. And we don't know most of these. So verse 18, from the wilderness they went to Matanah. No idea where that is. From Matanah to Nahaliel. That's also unidentified. From Nahaliel to Bamoth, also not known. And then from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. So the remainder of those verses take you to this region of Moab and, and most likely right on the other side. And uh, you have this uh, border with the Arnon Gorge or Arnon River. So I don't want to overcomplicate things geographically, but I do want to notice a few things about Moab and Pisgah here. Why would these little places be of any interest for the reader? First of all, they are camping in a valley in the region of Moab. So the last camping spot along the way, the last campsite, if we can call it, is in a valley. And it's in a valley in a certain area east of the Jordan River and Dead Sea. It's in a region of Moab. And in this region, they will be around this region for the remainder of Numbers and all of Deuteronomy. It is in this region they will rise up as a people in Joshua to cross the Jordan into Jericho. So the region of Moab, that's a really big deal geographically. But then notice that associated with this is something called the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. And not only looks down on this desert region, you can even see uh, outlying parts of uh, the Jordan River and beyond. The top of Pisgah will matter for Moses. There is a particular peak on Mount Pisgah called Mount Nebo. And Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, will climb Pisgah to die. Here is the way this works in Deuteronomy 34. We're told in Deuteronomy 34.1, it says... Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land. And then it gives you some various descriptions of that land and some of those places. And here we're told in verse 7, Moses was 120 years old when he died. Mount Pisgah will be an important place for the Israelites to have arrived at. It's associated with Moab. All right, they're going to cross over from Moab as a new generation. Moses will not go with them. Where will Moses go? Well, the view from Pisgah will be his last view, actually. So that vantage point and all that can be seen, he will climb that into a particular peak known as Mount Nebo, and Moses will die. 
What I think we're witnessing tonight with various geographical details, which it's not an exciting narrative. It's not like the bronze serpent being lifted up and snakes biting people and dying before that. And it's not like the battles that are the rest of Numbers 21 or the Balaam stories to come in Numbers 22 to 24. This can seem like filler information. But sometimes in order to see how a game is to be played well, to notice all the moves that are coming, you have to recognize how everything is set into place first. And what we're witnessing tonight are various providential positioning of the people of God geographically. They are positioned now in a very particular place and for very specific reasons. And the reason this matters is because we just had a victory over the king of Arad. It doesn't jump to the Moabites and Balaam and those. You think, well, how did we get from there to there? A transitional section is what we notice tonight. Peace is being put into place to set up what is about to follow. The plains of Moab for the people of God and Mount Pisgah for Moses specifically will matter much for their very near future. This is the 40th year. Moses will die at 120 years old. How old is Moses when he arrives at this spot to see Mount Pisgah in the view? He is already 120 years old. He does not have many days that remain. And then lastly, you, uh, you can notice that later in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah will make much of the notion of a well and water and deliverance. It is the case that God has provided miraculous provisions of water and wells for the people. Not just in the age of the patriarchs, though there were some discoveries of wells and digging of wells and preserving of wells. God has provided for their livelihood. Even the Israelites have experienced manna from heaven and water provision along the way. These physical elements do point towards something more deeply that the people need. A well that will usher forth in something saving, redemptive. Here's the way Isaiah 12 says it. Isaiah 12 verse 2. God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Verse 3 says, With joy I will draw, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you'll say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. And we come tonight in our last gathering on, a, on the Lord's Day before uh, celebrating Thanksgiving later in the week. And we are called here to give thanks to the Lord from Isaiah 12, verse 3. And what do we have in view in the context? Wells, salvation exploding upward, delivering grace and mercy of God provided for the people. Give thanks to the Lord, he says, and call upon his name and make known his deeds. Here in Numbers chapter 21, we see the Lord providing water for the people. And that just prepares the way for the day God will provide salvation for the people through the well which is Jesus Christ. No one finds salvation by going to Be'er now. They don't go to any of these particular locations saying, where is this water that we might draw from it? Even the Samaritan woman in John 4 had to learn that something of living water and eternal life was necessary. So we go to the well whose name is Jesus the Nazarene. Christ the Lord, who is born for our salvation. Let's pray together.